Now let's take our Bibles, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we talk about the greatest day in history, I love the Christmas season. I love all the different things about Jesus' teaching, but this, this is the Resurrection Sunday is the greatest day in all of history. Now let's face it, the resurrection is hard to believe. You have to allow for the miraculous in order for it to be true. But just because it's hard to believe does not mean it's false. Every medical practitioner had trouble believing that creatures invisible to the human eyes could be responsible for infection and disease. In 1872, Pierre Pajat, a professor of physiology in France said, Louis Pasteur's theory of germs is ridiculous fiction. And today we call those germs bacteria and viruses. Some things stretch our imagination too much. Tom Watson, chairman of IBM at the time in 1943 said, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. And you think about it, if you've got an Apple Watch or a phone, right, all those are computers. Naysayers abound and the stories of their failed predictions are legendary. The Beatles were told that guitar music was on the way out as they were beginning their successful career. Fred Smith was informed by his Yale University professor while he was working on his MBA that his concept of overnight delivery was not feasible, but Federal Express was founded anyway. Alexander Graham Bell was told the telephone was impractical. Yet every few years, someone publishes proof or some myth that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And so we're asked to believe the miracle of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is the greatest day of history, as I said, and is attacked because it is, if it's true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then his claim to be God is true. He points us to Jehovah Yahweh as the true God, and the word of God that we have in our hands and on our phones is true. And what he says in his word would be absolutely true, and then people would have to make their mind up whether they're willing to accept the absolute truth of the teachings of Christianity or not if Jesus physically rose from the dead. But one of the biggest stumbling blocks of people's lives of embracing Christ is their unwillingness to let the Holy Spirit come in and transform their lives. You see, a lot of people believe in the resurrection, but they don't want to leave their life of sin. That brings us to our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. This is the earliest creed of the church. As my former professor Gary Habermas famously said, this was within hours within hours of the resurrection that the, the believers were repeating this and reciting it at their gatherings as they gathered to pray and study God's word. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.1, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we commit this time in your word into your hands. We thank you that your word says in Isaiah 55 that it never returns void. That as each one of us are sitting here, Lord, today, you know our hearts. You know what's going on individually. And we pray that as we proclaim the truth of your resurrection today, as we see how Paul extrapolates this in 1 Corinthians 15, 
that it will cause us to allow you to transform us and change us, either to become believers in Christ for the first time or for being a believer a long time, transform us again anew and afresh today to be more like you. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. We believe that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead early Sunday morning. And we do believe that he was dead. Some would try to tell you that he, the swoon theory, that he was, you know, unconscious and all those sorts of things. But we, we think about the beatings that he went through. If you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, for example, the actual crucifixion, but then the centurion sticking the sword into his side, into his chest cavity where the blood and the water came out showing that his heart burst under the stress and the weight of the world's sin. He was dead when they buried him, and he rose again physically on Easter morning. So let's look at what Paul says to us in the great resurrection chapter of the Bible in 1 Corinthians 15. And I want you to take notes, because we're going to look at the contrast. What if the resurrection is false? What if the resurrection is false? And Paul lays out some scenarios to think about if Jesus is still in the tomb. Here are eight reasons that Christianity would be a waste of time and we would be fools to believe it if Christ was still in the tomb. First of all, the gospel would not be preached. We just read the gospel. Of first importance, Paul said, of the top priority, it means in the Greek. The most important thing is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. There would be no message of reconciliation to be passed on. We would have no way to have access directly to a holy God. There would be no message of hope in this life. Second of all, Christ would still be in the grave. Look at verse 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Many, many, many liberal theologians for hundreds of years believe Jesus Christ is merely a symbolic myth. Some believe he rose again just in spirit, but not physically. They believe that he's still buried somewhere, but funny, nobody has found his bones yet. There's many problems with the fact that Jesus has not risen. We're going to see later on that he was seen by his 12 disciples. He was seen by up to 500 people at one gathering. And some postulate, well, they must have all had a hallucination. But it's psychologically impossible for 500 people to have the same hallucination at the same time. No one could refute the tomb was empty. The Roman leaders believed Jesus rose because he wasn't there. And they started the rumor that the disciples stole Jesus' body based on what the Jewish religious, religious leaders paid them off to say. The third thing, our preaching would be in vain. <clears throat> it would be in vain. There would be no need for us to gather for a church service. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. No need for a church building, no need for a Bible, no need to pray or have faith in God. We would be wasting our time. <clears throat> it would be better to follow the ways of this world system and the philosophies of our culture. I've been reading a great book called Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane. And she lays out four prominent 
things that our world philosophy, our secular world system around us is aspiring to. One of them is feelings are your ultimate guide. Now, if we believe Christ is still in the grave, we could hold on to these things. Feelings are your ultimate guide. Be led by how you feel because feelings are their most reliable guide of what you should do in your life. Man, you hear that from Disney. You hear that from a lot of different places. One person said, follow your heart. It knows the way. Beyonce, the singer, said, I don't have to prove anything to anyone. I only have to follow my heart and concentrate on what I want to say to the world. I run my world. Paul Abdul said, break the rules, stand apart, ignore your head, and follow your heart. Natasha Crane said the second thing is happiness is the ultimate goal. In this view, the only measure of life success is whether a person has been in touch with their feelings enough to know and pursue what would make them happy. So embrace social justice and making earth a better place to live environmentally. Embrace your sexual orientation and your gender identity. Enjoy a life without much responsibility. Abuse alcohol and drugs. That's okay. Do whatever you want to your body. Even focusing on saving baby iguanas. All these things. All these things. We could think, if that's what makes you happy, do it. Then she says, judging, thirdly, is the ultimate sin. Don't come along and judge someone else's feelings or how they pursue happiness. This is the unpardonable sin in our current world system. You get canceled. You get fired from jobs. Even if it's something you do on your Facebook post in your own time. And then lastly, she says, God is the ultimate guess. God is the ultimate guess. Yes, there's room in the world system for a God, but that God is good only as long as it doesn't require anything from us. He or she is there to be like a vending machine available to meet needs. Steve Smith in his book says this God is the moral, therapeutic, deist God. That he's there, he's available whenever we want him at our beck and call. So think about that. No fear of judgment in the afterlife. At the end of life, you evaluate where you're happy when your body switches off like a dead battery and that's it. And then we see another thing, if the resurrection isn't true, it made God and the apostles liars. Liars. 1 Corinthians 15, 15 says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. All that God and Jesus had done would be proven false. Who would believe Jesus' teachings after his death if he was not resurrected like he promised? Why would the apostles be willing to die for a lie? Think about that, because they died pretty horrific deaths, except for John died of natural causes. There would be no hope after death. There would be no hope after death in 1 Corinthians 15, 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. There would be no hope in this life, no hope of heaven, No hope of seeing our loved ones and our friends who've gone on before us. Life would end like an animal at death. If the resurrection is not true, we would be lost in our sin. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We would still feel guilty 
We would have a conscience telling us things are wrong, but we wouldn't have any way to remove the guilt, to have our sins taken care of. All, all you have to do is look around at those who are not Christ followers to see the burden and the weight of sin. Many of them, you can see the hopelessness in their eyes and the despair that they're going through. Those who are Christ followers would be just like them if the resurrection wasn't a proven fact. In a few moments, we're going to talk about evidence that's outside of the Bible and in history and other places to show the truth of this world-changing event. Just a couple more. All dead believers in Christ would be in hell. Think about that. We would all be suffering in eternity, most likely, or we would just not exist anymore. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It's over. This would be the absolute worst reality of all time. We would either not exist or we would suffer and be punished for eternity. And then we would be miserable and considered fools. Considered fools. It says in verse 19, if in Christ we have, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It would be pitiful for us to continue to worship, to meet together. We would throw our Bibles away. It would be worthless. We'd be considered fools. There would be no purpose in life. We could just live by our feelings and whatever we wanted to do. We would have no moral compass or conscience. We wouldn't have the Holy Spirit of the Bible to give us direction in this life. We would not have community of fellow believers to share life with. We would be lonely and left our own means to figure out the riddle, the purpose, the meaning of life. We would lose all we have of what we consider the Christian life, and there wouldn't be any reason to be a Christian. So here's our application. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die could be the motto of our lives if Jesus is still in the grave. Thank God that we have the assurance that the resurrection is true. In the movie, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, who was an atheist at the time, trying to disprove Christianity. And one of his fellow journalists at the Chicago Tribune, who was a believer, he said, I'll save you a lot of time, Lee. You just go for the jugular. Go for the resurrection. You disprove that, Christianity will fall like a house of cards. It's kind of funny because that's exactly what he did and it led him to Christ. So what if the resurrection is true? <clears throat> well, first of all, we celebrate, as we do today, a risen Savior. Look at what Paul says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Isn't that amazing? Just as we celebrated Jack getting baptized and coming out of that water, when we accept Christ, we are made alive by that same resurrection power that brought Jesus out of the grave. Sin entered the world when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of good and evil that God had forbidden them to eat. He said, you can eat of any tree you want, but not this particular one. And of course, we know they disobeyed God and immediately were made aware of their sin and their separation from God. Remember, God had come to the garden and he said, Adam, Adam, where are you? He was used to meeting Adam on a daily basis, but he was hiding because of sin. 
Sin separates us from a perfect and holy God. I just want to remind you that Buddha died at 80 years of age while living in India, and you can go and visit his grave. Muhammad died on June 8, 862 AD in Medina, Turkey, and he's still in his grave. Confucius died around 500 BC in China, and they have a marker commemorating his gravesite. But Jesus' tomb is empty, and if you read 1 Corinthians 15, we see the many evidences of his resurrection. Look at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> and that Jesus appeared to Cephas, another name for the apostle Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So we have an abundant and purpose-filled life because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul concludes his defense of the resurrection of Christ in his chapter, in his verse, in verse 58, the last verse in this chapter. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Because you serve a risen Savior who's alive, who's our high priest, who's praying for us, who's at the right hand of the Father. Because of the resurrection, salvation can begin today for anyone who places their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Here's a few other things, benefits due to the resurrection. We have forgiveness of sin and the removal of guilt and shame. Christianity is one of the few, or well, is the only religion that gives us grace, but also removes the shame. We have many religions who are doing all kinds of things to try to atone for their sin, but guess what? Ours not only removes the sin, but removes the shame after the fact. And then we can rest fully on the word of God. Isn't that amazing? We can, this is our uh, direction for life, our compass, that it speaks to all the needs and areas of our life to give us wisdom, to supply and meet our needs. We know who the true God is. We know who the true God is. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know who God is? See me, and I will take you and direct you to Jehovah, Yahweh. The fallacy of our times is that many people believe there are many ways to God. There are many people who believe in universalism that all these different religions, they have different names for their God, but it's all the same God. It's just in their culture, they use these different names for them. But I'm telling you, it's interesting when we think about if we're ever in a situation where we're in water and we're in the deep end and maybe, you know, we're drowning and someone comes along and says, here, here's a life preserver. We don't sit out there in the water and say, no, I want the green one go back and get a blue one. No, we take the one that's gonna save us, right? And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we can enjoy all the benefits of the power of the resurrection. There's so many that we don't have time to even go into that. But the benefits of the power of the resurrection. In Colossians 2.12, Paul said, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, 
by his death, speaking of Christ, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We have power over sin with the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the power of Satan and his demons who tries to destroy us. We have the power over them, even when he tries to discourage us. We have the power over death. Death has lost its sting because there's a heaven open to all who will believe. And we'll see Jesus face to face and we'll see our loved ones who've believed and trusted in him there in the future. The resurrection gives purpose and meaning in this life. And then when we come to Christ, the abundant life begins. We always talk about eternal life and life after death, and that's important. But at the point of salvation, we have this abundant life that God wants to bless us with here on earth. We have a hope no matter what we face. And one of the greatest things I feel in the Christian life is knowing that God is always with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And we carry him wherever we go. He's described as a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And God says we will never be alone. And then obviously the most important is the assurance of eternal life. These things are written that you might know that you have eternal life by believing on the name of Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 13. We have the evidence to show that the resurrection is true. Many say, well, just... Just because the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead, that isn't enough to prove it's true. That's what people who are biased say about the resurrection. How about some external evidence? Well, first of all, there's historical evidence. There are historians who are not believers who've come together and they agree agree on 10 central facts about the resurrection of Christ that cannot be refuted that Jesus actually lived a physical life, walked on this earth, and there's enough evidence to prove the resurrection of Christ. Then there's empirical evidence. Now, what is empirical evidence? This is evidence that somebody can use their senses, their touch, their taste, their smell, their eyes, they're able to hear. Someone has been able to observe these things. One of the things we can kind of look back to the Bible and see if it's true, is archaeology. Do you realize that every archaeological dig that's ever occurred where they found some artifact from the Bible has proven and supported what the Bible says is true? We could point to fulfilled prophecies. Do you realize there are 365 or more prophecies about Jesus Christ? And all the prophecies up to this hour that have been given, Jesus says fulfilled. There's some remaining that he's going to fulfill in the future. So all the prophecies have been true. But one of the best ones that I like to look at is Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian who was not a believer in Jesus Christ, but he was a tremendous writer of history of that time. And around 90 AD, which you think about that, that's just 50, 60 years removed from Jesus, he wrote this account. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He went over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross. Those who had first come to love him did not cease. 
He appeared to them spending a third day restored to life for the prophets of God have foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians so-called after him has still to this day not disappeared. 90 AD, Josephus, the Jewish historian. And then there's experiential evidence. Experiential evidence. The disciples died a horrific death. They believed in Jesus. They went and proclaimed his word. One of them was dragged behind a horse until his flesh came off. Some of them were beheaded. Peter was, by tradition, crucified upside down, thinking he wasn't worthy to die the same way Jesus did. They died horrific deaths, but they experienced Christ and they believed it. Over 2 billion people on the planet are claiming to follow Christ today. And people in this room, the testimony of your faith in Christ and the transformation has occurred, no one can dispute because you have experienced it. And it's, that to me is a very powerful, powerful evidence to share with people how Christ has transformed your life. But then lastly, there's biblical evidence. Biblical evidence. In Acts 2, shortly after Jesus ascended, Peter's first sermon, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. That word attested in the Greek mean, means God stamped his approval on Jesus. Attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. It was preordained that Jesus would die and rise again to give us that hope of eternal life. So the application here today is this, receive and live in the reality of the gospel now into eternity. Receive and live in the reality of the gospel now into eternity. And our key thought, what will you do with the reality of the resurrection of Christ? Knowing that Christ rose from the dead, knowing what the Bible teaches about how to go to heaven if you're here today and you don't know Christ, what will you do with that knowledge? Will you respond to an invitation in a moment to pray and receive Christ as your Savior? For us as believers, it should cause us to tap more into that resurrection power that we possess in the form of the Holy Spirit living within us to allow him to transform more of our lives. But I want to speak for a moment something about some of us maybe in this room. We think about people who may feel, well, I'm not good enough, or I've blown it, or I've sinned against God too many times. The idea of being a monumental failure. How would you like to have a monument erected that reminds every one of your greatest mistake? Think about that. That's what happened to Arnold Palmer, the 1960 golfer of the year. He shot a 12 on the par 5 ninth hole at Rancho Park Golf Course in Los Angeles. And there was a plaque placed there. It's there to this day to commemorate the event. It reads on Friday, January 6, 1961, the first day of the 35th Los Angeles Open, Arnold Palmer, voted golfer of the year and pro athlete of the year, took a 12 on this hole. 
Wouldn't you love to have that plaque in your name? <clears throat> Even the great National Hockey League goalie, Jacques Plante, once bemoaned, how would you like to have a job where every time you make a mistake, a red light goes on and 20,000 people boo you when a goal is scored against you? In Luke chapter 22, if we think about Peter, we think about probably the biggest thing that stands out in our mind is he denied Christ three times. And before he did that, in Luke 22, Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And here's the prophecy. And when you've turned again, in other words, you're going to deny me. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Perhaps some of you have reached a similar low in your life, like Peter. Maybe there's been spaces in your life where you've denied Christ. Or maybe you're at a low point right now. Or maybe you think you've done things that are unforgivable. There's no hope for me. But here's two important words I want to leave with you and think about. In Mark chapter 16, verse 7, listen to this. The angel talking to those who assembled at the tomb after Jesus rose from the dead, the angel says, but go tell his disciples, and here's two key words, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Two very powerful words that accomplish three things. One, they convinced me that God wrote the Bible. And Peter teaches me how God deals with failure in my life. <clears throat> only God could have added those two words, and Peter. If Peter only heard the message, go and tell his disciples, disciples, surely he would have said to himself, it doesn't include me. It cannot mean me in light of what I've done. I've disqualified myself as a disciple. But the Lord knew that those two words would give the fallen apostle hope. They also teach me how God deals with failures. Like Peter, maybe you're burdened over sinful things that you've done, embarrassing things that you're ashamed of, unnecessary pain that you've caused, things that have grieved the Lord, and you've disappointed many people. But let and Peter give you hope. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Our God is the God of second chances. And these two words, and Peter, assures me of God's complete forgiveness. Think about this. John Mark was on a missionary journey trip with Paul and Barnabas. And in the middle of the trip, this teenage boy abandons them and goes home. And Paul and Barnabas have a big fight as they prepare to go out the next time. And Paul doesn't want John Mark to go with them. And of course, they split into two groups. But John Mark later repented. He had a relationship with the apostle Peter. And Paul later reconciled with John Mark, and we see God's grace in all of this. Second chance Mark was befriended by second chance Peter and commended by second chance Paul, the chief of sinners, in 1 Timothy 1. God wants to give all of us a chance to first of all come to Christ and to meet him at the foot of the cross and be saved. God wants us to continually give us as Christ followers second and third and on and on the number of chances. The gospel makes these two things possible. So as we close today, do you know Christ as your personal savior? Are you assured that if you were to die today and stand before God, 
that he would welcome you into heaven. You can know that for sure. The Bible teaches, as I shared a few minutes ago from the baptismal tank, that we're all sinners. That we're born into this world separated from God. We have a penchant to do our own thing, to be selfish, to run away from God's commands. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the Bible says at the end of our life, the wages of sin is death. There's going to be a payment necessary for our sin. And that's the really bad news. But the good news is that Jesus came and he went to the cross and he shed his blood. And God said, because Jesus shed his blood, if you will come and turn away from your sin and admit that you're a sinner and ask Jesus to come into your heart and life, he will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you of all your sin. And you will be able to have a relationship with him. You will have the assurance of eternal life because you know and believed on Jesus Christ. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. And maybe you're here today in this Easter morning. Maybe you aren't sure how you could answer that question. If God were to say, why should I let you into heaven if you were to die today? I hope that you can say it's because you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you haven't, here's an opportunity. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I encourage you to pray. And it's not the magic of the words, but it's the intent of your heart. Just say, dear Lord Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner. I've broken your laws, and I cannot earn my way to heaven but I ask you to forgive me of my sin and help me to turn away from my sin and turn to you and receive you as my personal savior. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, just myself and God, I just want to encourage you, if you prayed that prayer, just slip your hand up so I can pray for you. So I can give you some more information to grow from that point on. Yes, anyone else? Yes, yes, several hands. If you prayed to receive Christ, slip your hand up. Yes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for those that have raised their hands that want to be sure of their salvation. They want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're on their way to heaven, whether it be today or 50 years from now. And I pray that today will be the day that they prayed that prayer and received you as Savior. And this would be the beginning of a journey as they grow and walk in a relationship with you and to learn more about you and to become more like you. We pray for them. We pray for all of us, Lord, today as we think of the resurrection and the power of it, that God, you will help us as believers to go out and proclaim it and then also to allow it to continue to let you be Lord of our lives by transforming us. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.